Welcome to the Footprint Plus 2023 podcast series. Biodiversity Net Gain Strategies for Securing Compliance Brought to you in association with Environment Bank. Uh, Hello everybody. Um, Thanks for coming along for our chat. We're going to run you through a kind of introduction to how biodiversity net gain works and how it's going to work, particularly from a development process and the the strategies that you might want to put in place if you or anyone you work with are going to be uh, involved in this uh, environment. So my name's Louise Martland. I'm a principal ecologist at Environment Bank. Some of you might have been expecting uh, Alexa. Um, She has not been able to come today, but uh, we should be able to cover everything off. And with me is Ben from Gowlings. Quick introduction of yourself? Or? Yeah, hi everyone. So I'm, I'm Ben, I'm a sustainability lawyer, which sounds much cooler than I really am. Uh, so I'm half planning lawyer, half environmental lawyer, uh, and working with Louise and colleagues on uh, BNG projects. Um, all of you should hopefully be well familiar with the Slido by now. Um, if you scroll down to us, we've got a little green blob next to us, Think Tank Biodiversity. Uh, feel free to drop questions in as you go. If there's anything particularly relevant to where we are in the presentation, Ben's going to shout them out for us. Or if not, we can save them and hopefully have a good Q&A at the end. Right. Um, So for those of you who might not be aware, biodiversity net gain is coming. Come November, there is going to be a national mandate for every single, very nearly every single development in the country to deliver 10% biodiversity net gain on, it'll start within the planning system in the coming planning applications to then be delivered on the ground. So we're going to talk you through a bit about how this is going to happen. Um, I will note that some local planning authorities are taking this beyond that and there are many which are putting in supplementary planning guidance to require a 20% biodiversity net gain. Um, so this has been put in place for, to kind of help reverse that decline we've been seeing in biodiversity nationally, globally. It's, we're losing wildlife species and habitats all the time. So this is one of the measures that government are putting in place to help reverse that and provide environmental resilience for nature, for biodiversity, but that also it's all interlinked into how we can help create better populations as well for people. Um, So linked with that, the projects that will deliver the best gains for biodiversity will also provide that interconnectedness. We'll have gains for carbon, for health, for that kind of wider people well-being, um, particular habitats and that they're... Provi- oh. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a last minute standing here. I'll get into the flow of it in a minute. That wasn't my best slot, but we'll, we'll get moving. Um, So what we're going to be telling you about is what we need to do to get ready for November 2023, which is when the mandate kicks in. So many local planning authorities are already requiring this. I personally have been working with developers since about uh, 2013 to deliver a known net loss to biodiversity. We're moving an environment towards net gain. So there's already a wealth of understanding of how this works in practice. Guidance is already in place and we're getting more regulations coming forward to help provide that clarity with how it can start to interact with other sectors. Um, We're going to go into a bit about how the legals work now and this is when Ben might be able to come and stand in, I think. Yeah. So the mandate is underpinned in the Environment Act, which came in in 2021. 
the, the lead time to 2023, November, is just to help local authorities prepare. This is a big step up in what is being asked of them. So we're moving from an environment where biodiversity net gain, the use of a biodiversity metric, which we'll get onto, has been a voluntary, so it's been a patchwork across the country. But now every single planning application is going to have to assess their impacts to biodiversity, deliver net gains either on-site or off-site. And so there's having to be a scaling up in resources, both within the planning authority and their planning officers, getting ecological staff on hand, but also within the development sector and the supporting sectors such as ecology to help everybody get that delivered. How it's going to work is as you submit your planning application, you're going to have to support it with a biodiversity metric. So where we've got the existing processes of habitat surveys, protected species surveys, there's now a calculation that goes alongside it. It assesses your baseline of biodiversity of your site, whether you're going to have an impact to what habitats, and where you can create an enhanced habitat on site to deliver green spaces for people and nature, you, what are those gains going to be, and is that going to be enough? You'll then have a, a pre-commencement condition, so that prior to starting your development, you will have to submit a biodiversity gain plan. So where you've had a biodiversity loss previously assessed for your site, this is where you're going to show how you're going to meet your compensation, but also that 10% net gain. So this is going to apply on-site and off-site. Off-site is usually held to more robust standards as has been in the past. Your projects are going to have to deliver for 30 years plus. That's 30 years after the completion of all of your habitat creation works. It's going to be legally enforceable through either Section 106 or Conservation Covenants and it's going to have to be monitored and enforced over that period. You're going to have to make sure it's properly financed. And those processes of having to, to show that robust processes is also going to start to come in onto on-site, where it's not just going to have to be you've written a management plan. Developers are going to have, begin to have to evidence how they plan to show that viability through that 30 years, how they're setting aside the finances, what's that monitoring structure going to be to help make sure that biodiversity is actually delivered on the ground. So a bit more step by step. The first step is baselines. So it's common practice for developments to have habitat surveys already on their sites. So it's just a little extra step. DEFRA and Natural England have set out all the guidance um, and details on the condition criteria for habitats. You're going to need to get ecological staff involved. The metric is something that has to be done by an experienced professional, but you're already going to have them engaged on projects. And so it's just an extra step to take that forward to get that robust baseline. What is happening on site? What can be avoided? Do you have valuable habitats which you can retain within your development? Is there anything that can be done to maybe tweak that master plan to retain the best habitats in the best locations and give you space to do your enhancements elsewhere? Get creative. So this is all about finding the balance between people and nature. We've got to have an eye out for development viability within the plan, both financially and what is going to be practical on the ground from an amenity perspective. Developments are going to be used by people, be it residential or commercial or a variety of infrastructure projects. 
So that, it has to come first. But where it's appropriate, let's try and be ambitious between what you do on site. Um, can you get that balance between nature and people? Sometimes it's not going to work because of viable management, your baseline environmental conditions, the type of disturbance you're going to do. But sometimes you can get really imaginative with how you can include that nature and biodiversity within a project. And that's something that it's really important to take into account in early stages. It'll help with regard to making the most of biodiversity on site, making less changes down the line because you're planning for it early, but also just helping get your budgeting in line so you know whether you're going to need an offset or not. We are, because it's Biodiversity Net Gain has been around a while now and there's a big build up to November, there's a lot of people all over the country who are working really hard to kind of provide information to support developers and the wider intersecting community to, to be prepared for this. So it's worth, if you've something that you want to find out more, which, which part of the sector do you fit in? Talk to people, find out advice. The formal advice is coming from DEFRA and Natural England, but there are many other sectors such as the UK GBC, also you've got IEMA, and then there's uh, private companies such as ourselves who are bringing forward that guidance and support network. We know a lot of the answers already, but there's also secondary regulations which are coming any day now, but in advance of November to help provide clarity. And that's going to be with regard to how things work on site for development, but are also intersecting. I'll go on shortly to talk about off-site biodiversity net gain provision. So that's when your development is going to have a biodiversity loss on site. And even with the best will in the world, when you're building on part of the land, you often can't compensate within that red line footprint. So that's when we talk to other landowners. Frequently, that'll be a farmer, but we've got a wealth of different types of landowners within this, com within this country. And if they're prepared to do a 30-year conservation project, then they can be a biodiversity net gain provider. So the guidance is coming up providing more information about how that intersects with countryside stewardship and agri-environment schemes. What other funding solutions? We will be able to stack with carbon, but we don't quite have the framework to understand how that works yet. So you can maybe be selling multiple natural capital assets off the same bit of land. And so we're still in a bit of a process of flux as that's determining, but we're getting that information so that you can start to design that from this point. Be aware that that is something that will happen. I would just it's still got a few months of flux while that's figured out. Um, it's important from a rural and uh, urban perspective. So quite often we're looking at rural developments. We're quite a green country. And so where a development is impacting a rich habitat, it obviously needs compensation and we're working with farmers to provide enhancement. But we have so much development and growth within our urban areas. But not only that, they provide real opportunities so as I said before, that creative thinking to provide enhancements that really provide for people and nature. You get weird little bits of wildlife that love that urban environment but just need a little bit of help to take hold. We need to be careful. You've got to put, you might have heard the term right tree, right place. It's going to be important with habitats as well. You can't squeeze blood from a stone with your on-site design. It's got to be viable from a number of perspectives. And sometimes that little patchy disturbed elements of biodiversity it can deliver some gain but we need to be reasonable in the targets that we're setting that it can create real opportunities to bring people closer to nature and we should be taking those where possible
So many developments with the best will in the world will not deliver on-site biodiversity and their options are going to have to be off-site. So this can be a developer delivering biodiversity for themselves on land that they already own or acquiring land, but they're going to have to take account of their long-term obligations. They're going to have to be setting finances aside for that long-term and they will be in charge of that long-term viability. There might be payments that could be made or relationships that can be made. Sometimes we see them engaging with organisations like a wildlife trust who will take on that obligation for them. And then there's companies like Environment Bank. This is what we specialise in. We provide a solution where developers have a one-off obligation, release that viability, and then we create large-scale conservation projects which can provide that biodiversity enhancement for a multitude of development but gives us the opportunity to create really exciting projects at large scale that really contribute to that reconnecting with the landscape. Our target is to have a habitat bank in every local authority. This is the coverage that we've got at the moment. We have long-term robust relationships with the local authority, keeping them in the loop with what we're doing, having them inform, providing them the funding so that they can overwatch us and enforce us as well. We shouldn't, we plan that they don't need to enforce us, but we're giving them that ability so that they can have their assurances that we mean to deliver and we get that all secured through section 106. Conservation covenants is mentioned, so conservation covenants are a tool that can be used to secure your off-site biodiversity gains. I'm not aware of a single one being, uh, having been taken off in the country yet, or of a responsible body who's ready to take on that obligation. But in the next year or so, we will start to see conservation covenants being used as an alternative to Section 106 to secure biodiversity sites. So as opposed to a bespoke site where one development will deliver biodiversity compensation at one site, habitat banks are large scale. Bespoke sites can be problematic because sometimes a development has only a very small requirement. They only need an acre of land and finding a landowner willing to enter into a 30-year obligation on just a small fraction of their land holding can be difficult and you lose those economies of scale so they're often more expensive to deliver. So habitat banks are something we're really excited about because it's large scale. We set them up in advance so that you can have really instant access to those biodiversity units from a development perspective. But it means all of those small contributions can come together into a large-scale site. This is actually one of our smaller habitat bank projects. Most, a lot of them are becoming larger and having more interesting habitat mosaics. But this is an example of an arable project we have. When we're done with it, we're going to have a wide, rich grassland project. Now, we've been taking a lot of environmental constraints into account with this site, but we know that we can deliver actually high-quality, priority habitat meadow which contributes to targets of the local area. We can look into those strategic factors so that we're contributing not just to us, nature in general and development, but contributing to county targets. And we're going to turn it into something like this, a meadow of grassland grazed by appropriate cattle. You've got the rich hedgerows and, and scrub areas at the side. But wetter is better. Where we can, we add in scrapes and ponds, so you bring in that multitude of wildlife, and you can start to create really exciting projects. We're going to create a wealth of monitoring results. We monitor our sites over that 30-year project period, have adaptive management plans so we can ensure we're meeting towards 
those biodiversity targets that are needed, reporting it to the people who can oversee that and use that data moving forward. So we can really adapt and check that we're delivering what we set out to. And being able to support urban developments, peri-urban developments at those edges. Most of our sites have public access so that we can bring people into that nature as well is a really important factor. Um, we're going to go next a bit into the developer experience, kind of step by step, what's taken into account from their perspective. So I already spoke a bit about that baseline, that habitat survey. There's an Excel calculation which is undertaken, which is produced by DEFRA and Natural England. Now this calculator is really useful. It is a, a land change tool for assessing those biodiversity changes. It can assess losses and gains. It doesn't have to be used just for development. It's a really good method to look at impacts and gains across different sectors. But for here, it's part of your initial assessment, your baseline of a development site. How does this affect your scheme design? What can we do to be making sure we're making the most of biodiversity and the purpose of the development? Do you need extra land to deliver that biodiversity net gain? This information needs to be brought forward either pre-app or planning application. And by doing it at an early stage, it gives someone the, the best chance they've got to make that decision for each development, whether they want to try and deliver more biodiversity on site or whether an off-site solution is going to be the best option here. The cost and availability of those biodiversity net gain units is going to be important. The, the process established by DEFRA allows for that trading of biodiversity cross-boundary, but the further away you get from your development, the more biodiversity you need to provide to accommodate for the fact you've got that loss of proximity and that local biodiversity value. But with a well-designed plan, you can have um, an, a, a straightforward planning process you'll get your permission free from challenge and you'll be able to live a biodiversity net gain. Um, as I said, from Environment Bank purchasing biodiversity net gain units, it can often become a near instantaneous process, but at the moment we don't have that full coverage and we need to work together to find the best solution for each development. So I was meant to be doing ticks as I went along there. there I've already been talking about the metric. So this underpins the, that biodiversity process and how we quantify that net gain, and it'll be going into all of the biodiversity net gain plans. This is a robust part to help evidence that mitigation hierarchy, which is a term which has been used in the sector for some time. You do need to have skilled ecologists that are looking out for it, but it also it helps provide that number. So when you're going into the boardroom, you can provide a framework when you're looking at, say, two different development scenarios. It's another bit of information to help make decisions of what might be best for the company. Um, and I think that is it. Um, up here you can see we've got a, a range of questions which we frequently get asked. Some of these are addressed in guidance, some of this is just kind of growing sector knowledge and the guidance is coming. Um, but I mean personally I've been working with biodiversity net gain before it was even called that for a period of 10 years and so I've experienced working uh, across different stakeholders. Um, and we'd welcome any questions that you have. I know by no means you're, I've, this has been a bit developer-focused and you're not all developers at all. So we're, we'd welcome questions just how out realms that you're interested in or whether you wonder how your work can intersect with it. 
Um, and when we're done, we've also got our stand just over to the right, if there's any further discussions that people may yep. have. And, and, and we have had some questions through already, and, and actually just picking up on, on, on the developer experience we were just talking about, Andy asks if there are requirements for off-site projects. To, Ooh, is that because we're to, too we close to stay together? away from each other. Um, are there requirements for off-site projects to be in the local area of the development to avoid urban areas becoming biodiversity wildernesses? And actually, this picks up uh, um, a, a lot of the questions I get from my developer clients who are they're not quite terrified, it's a bit strong, but they're very concerned that they'll have their scheme and the local authority officers will say, you must provide biodiversity on site. And that might affect their viability. It might mean that they can only provide 90 units on site rather than 100. Um, and I think the rule of thumb seems to be that local authorities will accept uh, biodiversity off-site solutions if they're within their borough. I've got a scheme in Bristol uh, and we can't deliver it on-site. Uh, uh, we can do something off-site five miles away, but it's in a different borough. Uh, and, and the council is saying, well, hang on a minute, what about my residence? Um, and I think you're developing biodiversity habitat banks ideally in every planning authority. Yeah, I mean, our target is a Habitat Bank in every authority, but it takes time to put all that together, so it's not there yet. Um, the, the national structure is, uh, it allows cross-boundary trading, and there's a framework for that, but the further away you go into different local authorities or national character areas, then you will have to fund a larger area of land so it will be more cost effective to deliver it locally so that's to try and incentivize that local delivery um, aside from that local authorities from a political perspective want to keep it local ecologically there's an argument for both so also built in within the metric is a strategic factor and that's a strategic factor from that environmental perspective most counties have nature recovery network, biodiversity opportunity mapping areas. And so there's also an incentive about putting the, the comp off-site compensation within those areas so they can contribute towards existing strategies to really contribute towards nature recovery. Um, from a development perspective, it's all about kind of what's going to be cost-effective, what will get approved by the local authority. And in that case, local is better, but sometimes particularly for desirable habitats, there's a bit more flex in where that will go. And particularly until that robust national network comes up, I mean, we're not the only ones bringing forward sites. There are alternatives, particularly some of them at a more local scale. It's always worth speaking to your local authority about what they know about who's providing different sites. Yeah. Um, but there's got to be an element of pragmatism until all of those local resources are there. And also the timing, that's why we say take it into account early within your your planning application, because if you contact somebody and you want your, your, your biodiversity units within a month, that doesn't give time to find a new site. So if it needs to be local, you need to get time to prepare that local site if it doesn't already exist. Yeah. And, and there is, there is a, a sort of an in-case-of-emergency break-glass solution, which is the Secretary of State credit. Ah, yeah, which, I completely which, forgot about that. Yeah, which, well, well, I mean, guidance talks about it being sort of credits from the Secretary of State being prohibitively expensive, and the Secretary of State wants to withdraw that option uh, as soon as the commercial market's up, up and running. So the, the principle behind the Secretary of State credit is that it won't slow down planning. So you'll always have a solution. But, uh, but all, you know, the Environment Bank's got the solution yeah. already. And you're meant to evidence that you've tried to find something locally first. Perfect. And then we've got a question from Tim Gardner who asks, how do you see this combining with urban greening factor as per Natural England's intention to nationalise by their, G their new GI framework, especially in urban areas? 
Um, I'm going to say that I'm not completely scoped up on the urban greening factor particularly, but the biodiversity metric quantifies biodiversity value, and so it can be applied in a range of different situations. Um, and where you have enhancements, even if they've come about from a different strategic perspective, you can still quantify those gains. So where you have gains, be it on or off site, which you've put in place because of other requirements and planning, they can still contribute towards your biodiversity net gain requirement. So there's often an element of collaboration of different approaches which we can work together. Um, for a better answer than that, I'd say come and have a chat or speak to us another time. I'm sure one of my colleagues will be more, more scoped up on it. Um, I don't know if you can provide a better no, answer. No, I'm I, I was very glad you were sitting next to me and could do that question. That's definitely <laughs> not a legal one. Um, do continue to use the, the Slido app for, for further questions. Uh, we, we, we've had to, we've answered them. So, Louise, oh, I we, think there might be a microphone. Oh, is there a microphone? People a feeling brave and We'd have extrovert? to ask Saul if he's, if he's there. Um, if okay. we can, oh, no, yeah, no, no, so no. hands in the air, also welcome. Okay, it will, oh, you've got a question. That lady there. Hello. Uh, thank you for this. Uh, was really, really inspiring. I, I love seeing the work that you're doing. Um, I just wonder if you could speculate on the future of um, the regulations and the requirements, and also, you know, maybe where that could go in your most ideal world. Um, is this something that? Well, do you already know? Will the requirements be continuing to increase and get higher and higher? Will will the minimum compliance get higher? Um, and if not. Or maybe as an alternative, could you see partnerships where large buyers, like large public sector buyers, may also uh, increase requirements? I'm thinking of partnering with people like the DFE or, um, or sort of... Yeah. yeah. So regulation-wise, uh, it's more of a fine-tuning at this stage. So, I mean, the, the metric and the concept of how we offset has been around for a number of years now. It's just that only more recently has it been moving towards a mandate and that has been getting more legislated. Um, so though there have been, say, changes over the past year, it is more of a fine-tuning and adding guidance for those adjacent sectors. So from a development perspective, I, I wouldn't expect the goalposts to be moving significantly. Uh, as I said before, with regard to how much biodiversity you need to apply, 10%, 20% restrictions on um, maybe the location of your offsite biodiversity net gain, that could be set at a local level. But again, it would be part of the local plan supplementary planning guidance. So once it's known, it will be known for some time. It's not going to be something that changes annually. Um, with regard to, to how it can integrate with kind of different kind of corporate entities um, we know of organizations which are using this as a, a land change tool to track their kind of enable them to do reporting on their biodiversity progress on their land holdings outside of development so they're not they, they may have developments occasionally on their land and then they can track their on-site off-site but it's also for say some of the large water companies they have a lot of land holdings and we know that they're beginning to use this to document their biodiversity value and set their own gain targets outside of a development and the tool can be used as the same similarly you've got different types of landowners you you mentioned um what was it divi yeah um 
yeah, so you can have a variety of landowners that can provide biodiversity gains you, as, as other than farmers to provide that provision. The Department of Education, it's, it certainly could be an education tool that could be used. Um, so, so I don't know where to take the Department of Education from there. Uh, do we have any other questions? Yes. Hold it really. Hold it very close. There we go. Um, I'm interested, actually, in one of the questions up there about the clean break. And do they get a clean break? How developers uh, get uh, a what, clean Greg, break? I didn't quite hear that. What's the question? How? Uh, ah, developers get oh, a yes. clean break. That's going to depend on the model that they use. So for on-site, they will need to evidence how they will provide a surety of that 30-year delivery. Um, and it should be monitored over that term. Um, Off-site, we have developers who occasionally, they might buy land themselves or use existing land holdings that they have. And so they are taking on that liability. They need to make sure they've got the finances in place to assure that. And it, it might be that the local authority will need some assurances that that money's been ring-fenced for that biodiversity or to provide commitment for that. If you're working with us, uh, you do get a clean break. The idea is it's a one-off obligation. We have really robust processes which we've worked very hard in putting together so that the landowners can have trust that their, fight, their income is going to be guaranteed for 30 years, that we have robust oversight of what that landowner is delivering so we can check that they're delivering the actions they should be and the biodiversity they should be. And we report that back to the local planning authorities. We provide the local planning authorities with funding so that they can dedicate officers of time to overseeing our offsets and they can have stepping rights to access the land, to monitor it on top of, and, and there are processes set aside to, to help that enforcement of that as well. But the point is at that point of purchase, the developer is removed from that long-term viability and we provide that local the local planning authority with the assurances that that is a robust relationship that the developer does not need to have that long-term liability and that we have taken that on. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, I agree. It, 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 it's whoever signs that conservation covenant or the 106. And typically in a 106, you know, for most developments, it's pay money price commencement or within a year or so. If it's a big number, you might just provide a bond to give the local authority comfort. These are unlike anything else I think we've seen in, in planning. Uh, potentially really onerous there'll be indexation, you can't really cost as a developer how much it's going to cost you over 30 years. And so when you're doing it on site, yeah, you put your 106 or your conservation covenant and, and you're responsible for it or your management company is and therefore your residents might be picking up the tab. The beauty of the, the, the Environment Bank product is it's, it's a compliance product, I guess, for, for, for developers. It's, it's by your units and it's your problem to deal with. Yep. Uh, and you're, you're putting it in the hands of experts who can properly maintain it. Hello. <laughs> I think it, that's a, a really good answer because it's how you link that 30-year obligation to selling on the land and who takes it on. Yeah, it, 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 exactly. So I've got clients, for example, who are building battery storage products mm. and they're going to put several of these together and sell them to probably a US fund and, or, or they'll need to finance them. And those funders or purchasers are going to say, well, what about those conservation covenants? How, how am I going to price those? Because they've got indexation in there. And it's got to address the what happens if there's a storm in year 13 and it's got to be redone. And, and, and so those buyers won't want to be interested in. So again, they'll, they'll really like the compliance tool because they're just shoving the problem to someone else. Thank you. 
Anyone else? We've run out of questions already. Well, thank you all for coming to listen. Um, our stall's just over there, so if you do have anything that crops up or you just fancy a little chat, come along. I'll be here for the next hour or so, but my colleagues will be here this conferences tomorrow as well. Mm. I think so. They'll be here tomorrow as well. Um, and yeah, thanks for having us.